Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. everyone and welcome to LawPod. I'm Rachel Killeen and this is the first in our PhD mini-series where we get to know some of the PhD researchers here in the School of Law. I'm joined today by Gillian Kane. Uh, welcome Gillian. Thank you. So today we're just going to learn a little bit about who Gillian is, what her topic is, how she got to be here and what she's learned so far. Uh, so by way of introduction, Gillian, could you just little, tell us a little bit about yourself and what your topic is? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on to the podcast. Um, as you've said, my name is Gillian. I'm a PhD candidate in the School of Law. I'm in my second year, so I'm about halfway through the process. And my project is looking at the role of international law in preventing and tackling trafficking among refugees and asylum seekers. Um, so what does all that mean? Well, a lot of the research that connects trafficking and refugee and asylum issues looks at whether trafficking victims could be recognised um, as refugees or granted another form of international protection, um, which is really valuable and interesting work and does connect to my work in many ways. But what I'm looking at is how to reduce the risk of trafficking, so prevent it or indeed tackle it when it does happen among refugees and asylum seekers in a context where they're seeking protection and would be falling into situations of exploitation. And I'm looking at the role of international law in doing that. And how did you come to choose that topic? Uh, well, I've been interested in the potential or capacity of the law uh, in the realm of tackling and, and preventing trafficking for some time now. I, prior to doing the PhD, I had volunteered with and interned for a number of anti-trafficking organisations and anti-exploitation organisations. And I think my experiences there made me want to do something um, in that area and to do further research in that area to hopefully uh, contribute something useful to the discussion and ultimately uh, see improvement on, on the ground for people who are experiencing exploitation. And I suppose during my legal studies, I became very interested in international law and the role that it can play. And I know, obviously, it's not perfect and there are a lot of criticisms, but I'm interested in looking at how international law can be used and the capacity that it does have. Um, so I suppose this project ties those two things together in the context of asylum, which I think is a very current uh, topic. And the idea of trafficking in that area, I think, is an underexplored one. And so all those things together made me choose, choose the topic. And you said there about how life can change in meaningful ways on the ground for people. Uh, how do you think international law can play a role in that? Well, I think that that is a big question and I think that's one of the questions I'm looking at in my research and I think that one of the first questions that maybe a lot of people have is, you know, international law is, seems so far removed from people on the ground. Um, obviously, where people access protection is in the domestic systems. So one of the approaches that I'm taking in my research is a comparative international law methodology where I'm looking at also how international law is received and interpreted and applied in the domestic system. So I think one of the things I'm interested in is like tracing the role 
of international or right down to where people can actually see the benefit of it. So whether that's being granted refugee status or whether that's the criminalisation of trafficking in the domestic system as a way to protect people, I'm interested in sort of making those connections from the, the international level right down to the domestic level and hopefully seeing a way where people can be protected by it. Of course, it's not the only thing that can protect individuals on the ground um, and it's not even the only legal tool that can protect individuals on the ground, but I'm interested in looking at what I can do. And now that you're about halfway through, mm-hmm. what do you think have been some of the more interesting things you've learned so far? Um, well, I think a lot of the first part of the project was looking at the context and understanding what trafficking might look like in the context of asylum. I think uh, from that, some of the things that I found out, one, one of the interesting things, I suppose, is, is, is the interplay between trafficking and smuggling, which are often conflated in, in the discourse and especially in the media, maybe often used interchangeably. And looking at maybe smuggling as a, a risk factor for trafficking in the context of migration. And I think that's a really key issue at the moment because a lot of refugees and asylum seekers, as you probably know, lack safe and legal ways to enter a country reg- regularly. And so often their only choice is to choose a regular migration, or at least they, that is the perception that that's their only choice. And so I think looking at the interplay between smuggling and trafficking and just the role of 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 heightened border controls in that has been very interesting. I think also extending it forward and realising that trafficking is quite difficult to measure, um, especially in the context of asylum. So, for example, one of the sort of problems or limitations is that we don't know what we don't know and trafficking is often hidden. So one of the things I've been quite interested in looking at is risk. So the risk of trafficking and what the literature has established that risk factors are for trafficking more generally and looking for where those risk factors are present in asylum contexts, I think, has been very telling and, and also to reveal that the risk doesn't end when a person enters the country of asylum. Those risks continue often through the process and even after some form of international protection has been given. So I think that's been really interesting to look at, not just the reality or the prevalence of trafficking, but also the risk, especially since my research wants to look at how to prevent trafficking. So I think for me, realising and just discovering that the risk and or reality of trafficking extends the whole way through the process and can be found at all stages of the process. And I think that is reflected across very different cultural contexts as well. So that's a lot of what I've discovered so far. I think at the moment I'm in the process of analysing a lot of the international frameworks, for example, the Palermo Protocol, which is the main anti-trafficking instrument, refugee law and also human rights law, and just looking at the ways that they interact with each other. When you said there you were talking about how smuggling and trafficking often yeah. get conflated, yeah. for a lay person, how would you distinguish those two terms? So trafficking and smuggling are both defined differently in international law. Both are defined in separate protocols to the Convention on Transnational Organised Crime. And for trafficking to exist, there needs to be three elements, an act, such as recruitment or transfer or transportation, a means, which is use of force or other coercive means broadly, and then a purpose, which is exploitation. For smuggling, it's more about uh, paying someone to 
help you cross an international border. And so smuggling is seen as sort of a crime against the state, a crime against the border of a state. And it's about that transfer across a border. Trafficking is uh, exploitation. It's a process leading to exploitation and can happen in the context of crossing an international border, but also in various other internal contexts. And I think it's clear to see from those distinctions that they are very different. But of course, in practice, if you think of a situation where someone is maybe using a smuggler to cross um, a sea cross and to, to, to illegally cross the border, you can see how maybe in, in the context of that and the, the power dynamic there that that could easily convert into a situation of trafficking could be both and might be hard to see which one is which in those kind of contexts. Um, but I think the main distinction is that trafficking is much broader than that mm-hmm. yeah thank you in terms of your own journey then mm-hmm. so far as a PhD student what has been most surprising for you I guess about because you talked about being an intern and doing this volunteer mm-hmm. work and you've had this shift now mm-hmm. into looking at this topic in a more academic way yes. what else has been interesting about this shift from on the ground work to kind of up in the academic world <laughs> I think um, I I think that actually being able to do this research is a great privilege, actually. Um, I think that even just from on the ground work or people that I might have encountered that are, you know, at risk of or potentially, you know, trafficking victims, I think I was always struck by the courage that they had and how, how strong they were. And I think for me, I realised that they didn't have a voice and that actually I could use my skills or my opportunities to do research and and, and put my voice out there. Um, what have I found surprising about coming here? I think probably how sometimes slow it seems <laughs> to get from the question to the answer and how rigorous you have to be with methodology and all that kind of stuff so I think it is a slow process so I think for me it's actually really good to keep remembering why I did it that I want to give a voice to issues that other people maybe don't aren't able to give a voice to the people that are the ones affected so I think it's good for me to keep that in mind in the process of the kind of slow and steady day-to-day life of doing the PhD which is I think, you know, probably the longest project I've I've ever done and I'm halfway through it now and it feels at times like, you know, you're you're maybe stuck in one little part of it. So it's sometimes hard to see the whole picture. And so for me, um, it's good to, yeah, I'm not really sure if I've answered that question properly. No, you have, you have. I suppose linked to that then, is is your hope to go back to doing more direct type of action and support for people at risk of trafficking or what what are your aspirations after the PhD? I think that I having sort of begun to go down the academic route have realised the value of academic research and I would quite like to stay in this area and that that has been a surprise for me. I think um, while it feels like change comes slowly I think that you know well-researched you know, good quality research can actually really help to inform discussion and and inform the, the direction of of yeah law and policy and practice. So I think for me, maybe you know five six years ago, I, I would have thought yes, I just want to go back and do that. But I think now that has changed for me, and I I see see the value of of academic research, and and probably would quite like to stay in that field. What advice would you give to someone, if we have any listeners that are maybe thinking about a PhD themselves? 
I think definitely if you're thinking about doing a PhD, don't be afraid to go for it. I think for me, I was quite scared to apply, um, especially for funding. For me, uh, funding was a bit of a red line and I, I thought, oh, it's terribly competitive. There's no way I will get accepted. But I think if you put the work into the proposal and you talk to potential supervisors and figure out, you know, what it is you want to do, I think do go for it. Um, but also I would say don't underestimate how much work it takes because it is a big commitment for a number of years of your life. But I think the final thing and, and the thing that's really helped me is don't isolate yourself. So I think for me, I've been really grateful to have a strong community around me and I think the PhD cohort here at Queen's in the School of Law is a really close-knit group and I've made really really good friends out of that and I think if I didn't have those friends I'm not sure <laughs> if I would be making the same amount of progress I think you know my advice to people is don't do it alone do it together with people um you know and, and don't only connect with people about research like go and socialize with the other people in your cohort because I think they're the ones that are going through the same experience as you and um yeah it's it's less isolating to do it together I think so that would be probably be my biggest piece of advice yeah, I absolutely agree. I was the same. I was lucky to go through with a nice group of friends. Mm -hmm. It just makes all the difference. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, thank you so much for talking to us. And best of luck much. for the next year and a bit of your research. Thank you very much. You've been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. Thank you to Gillian Kane for talking to us today. If you want to follow us, we are on Twitter at QUB LawPod. You can also visit our website, lawpod.org, and please have a look at the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes. We're now also on Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Killeen. This was LawPod.